I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 15, The Nature of Art. Session 2 topics. Paradox 2, Escape and Return. Paradox 3, I and We. Paradox 4, Integrity and Change. The Power of Art. The Goal of Art. In this session, I continue the discussion of the nature of art based on the teaching and writing of the late Professor Mary Holmes. Paradox 2. Escape and Return You have probably heard people say that escapism, or escapist art, is bad. If you believe them, you probably feel a little guilty every time you escape into art, movies, books, music, video games, TV. But the truth is that escape is essential to art and also essential to life. The people who say escapism is bad would be right if they said that art is bad and bad for you when escape is its only goal. But any work of art that does not succeed in causing us to escape from ourselves is a failure and also a bore. Not just weak or self-indulgent people but all human beings crave and need to lose ourselves in art. What does it mean to lose ourselves in a work of art? Let's say you go to a good movie in the late afternoon. When the movie is over and you come out of the theater, it's dark. Are you surprised? Why? Because during the movie, you are completely unaware of the passage of time. Did you think the laws of physics had been suspended? Of course not. You were not thinking about the laws of physics or the passage of time at all. You were simply lost in the movie. You were not aware of sitting in a chair or of having a dentist's appointment tomorrow or of wearing new shoes. In fact, you were not even aware of being yourself, of being anything. If you were aware of those things, it's a sure sign that the movie was a failure. It failed to take you out of yourself which is something we demand of any work of art. The work of art must carry us utterly away. If it doesn't, we call it boring, and it is boring. No one would pay to go into a movie theater to sit and watch a blank screen for two hours. If you did not see something up on that screen to make you forget yourself, and pretty quickly too, you would demand your money back. On the other hand, at the end of the best movies or concerts or plays or roller coaster rides or contemplation of the best paintings or eating of a deliciously well-cooked meal, we say, I really lost myself. I was carried away. I lost the sense of time. I didn't know where I was. Why do we crave to lose ourselves? And why is causing us to escape from ourselves essential to a good work of art? The answer is that every one of us feels bound in by the severe limits within which we live, and we need relief. It's that familiar frustration of being expandable minds tied to limited physical selves. Suppose the temperature went up only a few hundred degrees, we would die. If it went down only a hundred degrees, we'd die. We can travel for many miles on the Earth's surface without much danger. But if we went up just a few miles without a spacesuit, we'd die. If we went underwater for an hour or so, or stepped off a 16-story building, 
or offered someone else the use of our heart for a few minutes, we would die. None of us will ever be shorter than two feet tall again, or taller than ten feet. We won't fly by flapping our arms or know what it is like to be born as a kitten or a puppy. We can't live in the past or in the future, nor can we stop the present from turning the future into the past at a faster and faster rate. We'll probably never know what it's like to be 200 years old. One of the most severe limitations we live under is that none of us will ever be someone else. Whatever we do, however we grow and change, it will be our own familiar self doing it. And the most severe limitation of all is that we will die. Now all the animals live under the same limitations, but they don't make art for escape. Why not? Because they don't have the same sort of consciousness or imagination we do. They don't seem to suffer from these limitations because, so far as we can tell, they aren't aware of them as limitations, or of what it might mean not to have them. But we can and do imagine being taller or shorter or more beautiful or uglier or flying or living underwater or being someone else or living for a thousand years. And the contrast between that mental capacity to imagine being more or better or perfect or worse or just different and the inescapable knowledge of what we really are and will never not be is agonizing if we cannot sometimes escape from it. But the good news is that we can escape from it and we do escape from it again and again. Some people escape in destructive ways like excessive drinking, compulsive gambling, promiscuous sex, mind-altering drugs, avoidable physical danger, or wanton violence. Most of us escape in better ways, like meaningful work, love, and worship. And all of us escape daily in sleep. And we all also escape in art. Again, as with empathy and psychic distance, escape in art can be dangerous. When the movie's over, even if we don't think we're Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter, we may decide that living in the movie is better than being ourselves, and so we may fill our rooms with Star Wars or Harry Potter posters and listen to the soundtrack 20 times a day and watch the movie over and over and wear Star Wars clothes and speak Star Wars language and worship the Force or dress like Harry Potter and carry a wand and make up incantations. This is escapism made into an end in itself, and it too is the enemy of art. The real value of the movie is lost in this attempt to make into reality the escape that the movie originally provided. In the meantime, reality itself has been fruitlessly and often dangerously abandoned. The other half of the paradox is this. Most of us not only escape through art, but also return to ourselves. The value of the escape is known and appreciated only when we return to awareness of ourselves and recognize what has happened to us, where we have been. We can appreciate having enjoyed the movie only when we return to consciousness of ourselves having watched it. So long as we are still in it, its meaning escapes us. 
escape from and return to ourselves make up the second paradoxical pair on which art depends. Paradox 3. I and We Imagine you are walking along with a friend. Your friend is talking about something, looking down at where his or her feet are going. In the meantime, you look up and see a magnificent sunset. What do you do? Do you keep walking along, silently listening to your friend and enjoying the sunset alone? No. You say, wow, look, and point toward the western sky. Why? You are enjoying the sunset quite well, or moved by it, perhaps deeply. Why interrupt your experience and your friend's conversation to say, look? The answer is that even though each of us is an individual, forever compelled to experience as ourselves and as no one else what we do experience, at the same time we crave to share our experiences, especially our most intense and meaningful experiences, with others. What does your friend say when looking up and seeing the sunset you've pointed out? He or she says something like, Yeah, wow, look! He or she wants to share it with you as well, and is grateful that you have pointed it out. The sunset is not only being appreciated, but also being shared. Each of you is having an interior, individual experience. At the same time, both of you are sharing that experience. And the experience is only fully satisfying when it is not just personally moving, but also shared. This is part of what it means to say that we are social beings. Human beings want to share what moves them. Just as we need to have visible representations of ideas and beliefs and desires, we have a need to share those ideas and beliefs and desires with others. And art is a way of doing so. Making a work of art, any kind of art, is a way of saying to others, Wow, look. In other words, this moved me. I expect it will move you too. Let's share it. Here's a picture of my girlfriend or boyfriend, you might say. Meaning, look at the captivating beauty and exciting personality and delightful spirit I see in her or him. Or you might say, You'll never believe what just happened to me on the way here. Listen to this. And a story follows. Or, that was a cool movie. Remember the part where... We crave to share. And whether the medium is a story, a snapshot, a string quartet, a cartoon, or a play by Shakespeare, the goal is the same. Wow, look. One could say that Othello is, in one sense an elaborate and quite successful way Shakespeare has found to say, wow, here's what jealous pride is and does and looks like and feels like and leads to. Look. My podcasts, too, being works of art, exist to share something. They are my way of saying to you about Shakespeare, wow, look. Now, when a work of art succeeds at getting a great many people over a long period of time, to look and to feel rewarded for looking, that work of art becomes what we call a classic. A classic is not a boring old work that older people use for torturing younger ones, though unfortunately some adults do use classics that way, 
A classic, in this sense of the word, is really any work of any kind of art that almost everyone capable of getting it responds to the way your friend responded to your pointing out the sunset. Yeah, wow, thanks for showing me. In other words, a classic satisfyingly binds together a great number of people, a great number of unique individual experiences in a shared reality, reflecting the paradox of our being both individual and social beings. Paradox 4. Integrity and Change Having empathized into a work of art while retaining psychic distance, Paradox 1, having escaped from ourselves into a work of art and then returned from the experience, Paradox 2, having been individually moved and also shared the work of art, Paradox 3, what do we do? We may forget it if the work was forgettable, or we may want to forget it but not be able to. Sometimes it stays with us and keeps replaying itself in our minds in bits and pieces. Sometimes it forces us into doing more than remembering it. Maybe we want to see or read it again. Maybe we find ourselves thinking about it, analyzing what it means, trying to record or copy or recreate it. We may even become aware that we ourselves have been changed by the experience. Maybe it has moved us so much that we will never again look at, fill in the blank, the same way. Are we still ourselves? Of course. Are we changed? Often. Maybe in huge and noticeable ways. I see Star Wars and spend the next 15 years of my life preparing to be an astronaut. I see Julius Caesar and decide to learn Latin and become a historian of Rome. Or maybe we are changed in small, not noticeable ways. The next time I eat breakfast out, I order apple juice instead of orange juice because, whether I remember it or not, the movie's hero, or villain, did so. This is why the art of advertising works. We may even wish to judge a work of art on the basis of how it has changed us. Are we better or worse because of our experience of the work? Are we smarter, wiser, deeper, subtler, more insightful, more loving, more generous, more aware, more kind, more courageous after going to this movie or seeing this picture or hearing this symphony or watching this dance or reciting this poem? Or are we stupider, more foolish, shallower, duller, more obtuse, more self-absorbed, foggy, selfish, nasty, or fearful? Do we know more about life, human nature, ourselves, or less? Is the world we live in clearer or cloudier? In any case, two paradoxical things have happened. We have returned to being our same old limited selves. The integrity of what makes us who we are has not changed. We have the same name and personality and essential characteristics, and we feel ourselves to be ourselves. And at the same time, we have been affected by our experience, changed in some way, small or great. If we are self-analytical types, we might spend some time thinking about what the experience of the work of art has done to us. If not, not. In either case, our experience has altered us, subtly or dramatically. We may realize only years later, when we remember a particular work of art vividly, that before we saw it, we thought or felt one way, 
and after another. Or we may never think of ourselves as changing at all. But whatever our degree of self-awareness, we are both the same and different, unchanged from the limited particular person we were before, and also altered to whatever extent. The Power of Art Because of this capacity of art to change us, in small or great ways, you must never let anyone say, Why are you getting so worked up? It's only a work of art. As if art had no power. Art has terrible power, for good and for ill, and a very few examples will suffice to prove it. Marx's Communist Manifesto and Hitler's speeches, the first news reports about Sputnik and the filmed images of the collapse of the World Trade Center, the microscope and Gutenberg's printing press and the automobile, all are works of art, as are Plato's dialogues, St. Augustine's confessions, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the American flag, every TV commercial, and the Apple logo. Some works of art are good, some neutral, some misleading, some truly evil. But all exist to move human beings in some way, and to the extent that they succeed, they have power. To say it's only a work of art, implying that there's no need to worry because art can't hurt you, is one of the greatest mistakes anyone can make. The Goal of Art Of all the elements that go into our experience of works of art, the most significant, in a sense the fruit of all the rest, is this. Art gives us the experience of meaning. All human beings crave meaning. For the sake of meaning we will sacrifice anything of lesser value to us, not only time and money and work and attention, but in extreme situations, our health, our happiness, even our lives. Meaning is the one thing we will not live without. We seek meaning in our work, in love, and in worship. Some of us seek meaning in our looks, our grades, our teams, our astrological signs. All of us seek it in our own and others' behavior, our experiences, and our suffering. Mary Holmes recommended, and so do I, that you read about this basic human need for meaning in Viktor Frankl's book called Man's Search for Meaning. And we all seek meaning in art. We go to plays and concerts and movies. We go to museums and to the skating rink. We download music and tell jokes and play tennis and read and sometimes write poems, all in part to find meaning. Now, let's say you spend Tuesday afternoon playing a computer game and Thursday evening watching Shakespeare's Othello. On Tuesday, you'll be experiencing empathy and psychic distance, and the same on Thursday. On Tuesday, you'll be carried away from yourself while you're playing the game and return when it's over just as on Thursday you'll be carried away from yourself by the play and return when it's over. On Tuesday someone, whether the friend you're playing against or the voice of the game, might say, Wow, look at how you just smashed the enemy. And on Thursday Shakespeare might say, Wow, look at this great man destroyed by jealousy. And on Tuesday evening after your game you'll be yourself, 
and on Friday morning after the play you'll still be yourself, and at the same time the game will have changed you in some ways, and so will the play. In other words, all four paradoxes of art are present in both kinds of experience, the popular art and the classic. This is just to say that the computer game and the play are both forms of art. Can we say that one form is more meaningful than the other? If you expect me to tell you that the play is more meaningful than the game, you'll be surprised. There's no such guarantee. Let's say you have never seen a Shakespeare play before and don't get the language and haven't yet listened to my podcasts. And let's say you know computer games pretty well, and this one is especially challenging, and you're really good at it, and you're right on the point of beating the highest score of any player you know. Which experience is going to mean more to you? In addition to its fulfillment of the four paradoxes we discussed earlier, the meaning of the computer game lies, in part, in the thrill of triumph, the sense of accomplishment, perhaps a new understanding of what's possible in hand-eye coordination, perhaps a pleasurable symbolic experience of good conquering evil. The play might be a big bore, except maybe for the moment that poor Desdemona is being suffocated, but that thrill will hardly be worth the two and a half hours of talk that led up to it. But now let's imagine that you have listened to my podcasts and have been to a few Shakespeare plays and are familiar with the language and concepts of Shakespeare's drama. Then what might seeing Othello provide you? Insight into the nature of jealousy, maybe your own jealousy. Discovery that guilt can be proven, but innocence can't. Awareness of how the temptation of a negative picture works on the mind. Articulation of what it feels like to be hurt by the one you love and betrayed by someone you trusted. Experience of the danger of loving in pride, of life's tragical potential, and so on. If you now compare the meaning of the computer game to the meaning of the play, can you make a value distinction? Which will mean more to you? Let's say you still feel the answer is the computer game, no contest. Fine. Once you're out of school, nobody, with the possible exception of a spouse, is going to make you sit through a Shakespeare play if you don't want to. But when people say things like, Othello is a great work of art, what they mean is that the meaning it has conveyed to people who appreciate it is of great value, of deep, lasting, true, uplifting, and universal significance. If such things are rarely said about a computer game, it's because conveying that kind of meaning was never the game's goal. In any case, the purpose of these podcasts is not to convince you to like Shakespeare instead of computer games. It is simply to help you appreciate your own experience of Shakespeare as well as you can. A byproduct of that appreciation will be that you will also become a better and more authoritative judge of the quality of Shakespeare's work and of theatrical productions of his work. Then, if you want to compare Shakespeare's meaning to that of the computer game, go ahead. The judgment of the kinds of meaning each provides will be up to you. In session three, the next podcast, I'll discuss judgments of art, talking about art, and what makes a work of art great.
I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.